Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. And I'm Elizabeth Stark. And this is Storymaker Show. <laughs> For those of you paying attention, you might recall about seven episodes back, I interviewed Elizabeth. And we said this would be a great way for listeners to get to know us. Well, this week, the other shoe drops. I sit down with Angie and grill her with such tough questions as, what are the seven steps? And where do they lead? And who is Angie Powers? Well, Angie has an MFA in English and Creative Writing from Mills College, where she won the Amanda Davis Thesis Award for her novel, The Blessed. She also has a certificate in screenwriting from the professional programs at UCLA. She's the co-director and co-writer of the short Little Mutinies, which is distributed by Frameline, where you can go see it, and is was an official selection of the Palm Springs International Short Fest. And... Um, Angie was a quarterfinalist for the Nickel Fellowship and at the Blue Cat Screenplay Competition for the full-length screenplay of Little Munis. She's twice made it into the second round of consideration for Sundance Labs and was a CineStory semi-finalist. She also wrote and directed the short Hot Date, which premiered at Frameline, and The Truth About Love and Panic, a short comedy about anxiety, which also premiered at Frameline. And um, there's another short called Small Town Queero. Yes, small Is that available friend. yet? Not yet. Not yet. So wonder about that one while you listen to this delightful interview. Oh, but before that, the week of June 2nd, we'll be offering some free classes. So if you're interested in finding out more about those free classes, please sign up for the mailing list at bookwritingworld.com. That's bookwritingworld, all one word, dot com. And join the mailing list. There's an easy way to do it right on the front page there. And as a bonus, not only will you get information about when these free classes are happening, but you'll also get a great short course that Elizabeth gives on editing your own manuscript like a pro. There you have it. And enjoy the show. I'm so excited to be interviewing you, Angie. Well, I am excited to be interviewed. You are my favorite collaborator. Mm. And I have a lot of questions for you, actually. And I thought I'd start where I believe you started with me, which was your writing origin story. How did you start becoming a storyteller? Well, I think like you, I was uh, an avid reader of different kinds of books and short stories. And, um, you know, there were all kinds of things. I definitely often talk about the impact of the Oz books on me. But there were also there was also this Random House book of ghost stories that I, I should look up and see if we can find. But uh, I, I have a very vivid memory of that in my sister and my bookshelf. And we shared one. And that was, you know, something we didn't share a bookshelf. Yeah, we shared a room. And then we had this bookshelf that was our bookshelf. And um, sort of interesting that we had that many books for what we actually had. We didn't have like a ton of toys. We didn't have a ton of, you know, space. The, space. Um, but we definitely had parents who made room for books. Right. And actually, your parents still have kind of big, beautiful bookshelves where they have gotten rid of like, they don't have any clutter, but they have books. Yeah. They don't so. have book clutter. No. But they have books. Yes. So you were raised on books. Yeah. And, and, and joking, too, right? Joking yes. around those kind of family stories. Yes. Do you think so. that's part of the origin of your storytelling? Um, I think so. I also, you know, have decided, I don't even know if this is true, but, you know, I used to do a little bit of uh, physical labor that was not particularly intellectually taxing. Uh, 
my dad would prune the apple trees in the back too. And we would, my sister and my brother and I would all have to drag those trimmings into a big pile in the center of the orchard, which would then become the burn pile. That just sounds so like rurally blissful and fun when you're not doing it. No, it takes hours and it's boring. And so during that period of time, I would tell myself stories. I would also hum little songs, but that didn't seem to manifest into becoming a musician. Next lifetime. Yes. So, and then at some point, you decided to get an MFA. Mm Mm-hmm. That was a big leap. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, No, I mean, I think the other piece of my origin story, actually, was that in eighth grade, we were told to write a novel in my class, and I just really enjoyed the process of telling myself the story. I was very involved in it, uh, and so... You know, I was bummed when she then said, our teacher had suggested, like, after we do our writing, we then have to write it out into these little books. I was like, who handwrites a novel? And certainly when your handwriting looks like mine, handwriting is not the thing you're, like, looking for to really present your best work. So that experience was hugely impactful. I really enjoyed that. And Was this um, the teacher who thought you had plagiarized your project? Yes, yes. So... That was the other piece of it. Uh, you know, I have wonderful friends who were insulted for me. I, of course, took it as a compliment. And so, yeah, so I think that kind of... Can you just tell our listeners what happened there? Oh, well, my teacher made me wait after class one day and said, you know, I went into the library and I looked for this book. I was writing the story of a family going across the plains in a covered wagon and, you know, there was a brother and sister and it was like, just, you know, my imaginings. And I'm sure that was kind of a mainstay of what we were reading at that point. So she had gone to the library and looked for that book and couldn't find it, which would not be surprising if I had been plagiarizing because we had a very small library in our school. But she asked me to, you know, very honestly look her in the eye and tell her, like, what book I'd been copying Mm. from. I get, I totally get how that's a compliment. And at the same time, not (laughs) entirely Uh, the most, I mean, you can think about our kids and how devastated they would be to be accused, especially Leo, I guess. That's because we don't abuse them enough. So they don't have much, as much resilience. I think the truth is, you know, that was the least of my worries at that particular juncture. Um, You know, in eighth grade, you know, we were a lot more independent, especially here. So walking home, doing different things. And, you know, I liked getting in trouble. So really having someone think that I was plagiarizing for me was probably the only way I would have taken in a compliment at that particular moment. You take your praise where you can get it and how you're willing to take it in. Right. All right. So then now I've gone to eighth grade. Yes, I just, I do, we, I can, wanna, we can zip I, ahead. It's not that I don't, don't want to go through the entire educational process, but I also want to talk about some, some of the now stuff. Yes. So um, any other highlights between, say, eighth grade and the MFA that, you know, kind of turning points in your storytelling career? No, but I think I have gratitude for teachers, but I can save that for the show notes. <laughs> Sounds good. Yes, see Angie's thank you essay, Oscar speech uh, in the show notes <laughs> to all those wonderful Forestville, yep. Community College, yep. Santa Cruz teachers. 
And um, and so you you got an MFA. What were you looking for when you went to get an MFA? You know, I thought there was a secret to writing. I think I thought if I were in an environment, well, my entire life I've always wanted to live in sort of a cloistered academic environment. And I think part of me thought if I did an MFA, I would be in that kind of environment. Turns out it was not so much like that. I mean, you know, it is private. Mills certainly beautiful is Beautiful campus. Beautiful campus. Cloistered for the neighborhood it's in, certainly. But it wasn't sort of the living, breathing academia that I had had sort of always fantasized about. Um, Although we, we've had a number of your classmates on as, as guests. Yes. Who had achieved some success. And Absolutely. That's kind of one of the exciting things I think you do get as a cohort of people who are going after the same crazy trail. Right. But I don't think I understood that going in. Mm-hmm. So when you asked right. me what I was looking what for, what I was looking for was, you know, sort of this specialized environment where I would be with people who were also artists and doing these things. And we all were, but we were also all people lost in our careers and in our relationships and in, you know, all the messy things that when you think about, you know, Hogwarts, I think I was imagining it was kind of Hogwarts, but before Harry Potter. And, um, you was know, it, before? it wasn't all before. Harry no, it wasn't all before Harry Potter, but I'm just saying, yeah, like, yeah, I gotcha. The idea came before that. And so what, what did you get from your MFA? What were the I think the main things I got from my MFA were exactly what you just identified, that rela- those relationships with those people who are doing really amazing and interesting things. Um, not everyone continued writing, but they're still just really amazing, wonderful people that I have a lot of gratitude for having gotten to know and uh, to remain at least Facebook friends with. So. And you wrote, was it your very first novel besides the eighth grade one? Yes, I think besides the eighth grade novel, I... But that wasn't actually completed. My thesis was an excessively long thesis that didn't actually end in the same way. But so. it did win the Amanda Davis thesis prize, which which they give one a year, right? Mm-hmm. For, yes. for fiction or for thesis? Fiction. For fiction. Okay. So that was wonderful. Mm-hmm. It was it was recognized. And yes. it's, um, it's a World War One story. Yes. And and didn't and you felt like it didn't end. Can you say more about that? Well, I think, as you know, I didn't really have an idea about how to revise until I left grad school. So revision for me was a mystery, and kind of like handwriting the novel you've already written into a book. Well, different because my handwriting is terrible, so I was never going to get the presentation I wanted. Whereas revision. Um, is the opportunity to cultivate and how shall I say this? I think a lot of times when we start writing and certainly when I was at that point in my life, I didn't know how to plan. There was no way for me to figure out how to plan. I would just tell stories for the joy of sitting there and telling myself a story. But it didn't mean I had the skill set to go back and shape that story. And I think um, it really took learning to plan in order for me to be able to figure out how to revise. And how did you learn to plan? I went to the UCLA professional program in screenwriting. And screenwriting, obviously, they really emphasize this planning part. 
Um, and it's interesting. I mean, it's a very, I, I am continually learning both about prose and about screenwriting. Um, they're very different beasts. And um, anyway, so in the process of planning that, uh, lear- learning how to plan within the context of screenwriting, it gave me an idea to think about structure. And that's actually what I went seeking was structure, not necessarily revision. And then when I came out, I was then able to identify like, okay, only when I have a sense of my ending, can I really go back and get my beginning? And only when I've done this level of work and kind of going back through is, uh, am I able to have the skills I need to really get rid of scenes that don't particularly relate, um, if I can stay focused on a thematic idea, sometimes I can go in knowing I want to talk about something, but sometimes I need to write and then figure out, oh, this this is what's driving it. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because you're somebody who, as you described, you're telling yourself stories kind of to entertain yourself and then to become somebody who is extolling the virtues of planning is interesting because you teach now, you teach story development through book writing world and encounter people who don't want to plan or feel like they would be bored if they knew what was going to happen, that sort of thing. And one, I wonder, do you, did you have resistance when you absolutely, first? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I was so angry. I was so angry going through learning how to outline. And <laughs> that's um, so funny. Yeah. I, you know, and I had all of those feelings and thoughts and I don't know, someone should probably go back and look at the writing I was doing prior and after and, and tell me, you know, whether I've made the right turn. But um, I feel like I've gotten to a point now where I am able to enjoy both that sense of telling myself a story and um, outlining so that I in, in that kind of exploratory visioning story is still happening for me as I outline. Um, and that in re- the process of outlining, you're, yes. you're telling yourself the right. story rather right. than in the first draft. Right. And then from there, I. Uh, I can go in and start saying like, okay, well, I now I really know what I want to say. So now I I can kind of focus on other things like language more or, um, you know, getting a draft down that fits a particular shape that helps me at least get closer to what I want to do. And then I think in, in certain ways, because I'm the person I am, I can't go in and just do revision with a big capital R. Um, I need to break it into smaller pieces and having a shape of what I want to do helps me identify smaller pieces. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I can go in and focus on dialogue. I can go in and focus on setting. I can go in and focus on uh, emotion or different things. I can I can Mm -hmm. make those smaller, simpler steps because for someone like me, I can't just do a broad swath revision. So this, I don't know if this is a leap, but you novelized one of your screenplays. Yes. During NaNoWriMo, I believe, right? So you had written the screenplay, and you'd actually written it as a play, and we'd done a short from it, Mm -hmm. and then you wrote it as a screenplay, and you revised it as a screenplay. I mean, you really had spent a lot of time with this story, Little Mutinies, which I love, and then you you novelized it in Mm -hmm. NaNoWriMo. And um, did you finish it in the NaNoWriMo, or did you keep going? After. I think I finished you it did in the, the 50,000, but then you kept going and, and finished it, right? So um, 
Can you talk about that process? Because you added not only to the characters and the, you know, the language and all those things that you add into a novel, but you added plot. Mm -hmm. So one of the differences, I think, between like a screenplay and a novel is, is I think with a screenplay, you, it's actually much simpler than you think. I think that um, the thing that I keep coming back to is simplifying and simplifying. As, as a prose writer, I think I go the other direction, making things more complicated and more complicated. And, and as a screenwriter, I need to sort of dial back and make things simpler. So I think when I sat down with this screenplay that I had revised and worked, and um, it did a couple of things for me. One, I had that outline and I had a clear work goal. So for some, again, someone like me, having a small concrete thing, I just have to write this one scene. I know what it happens. And even if it's something like the screenplay, I have a sense of the dialogue. I have a sense of location. I have all of this information and I can go more deeply into it. I think when I was writing the novel, the limits of the complexity of screenplay became clear. Um, but I also allowed myself to explore and to be open to where my story might move. And so, yes, there were incidents that then became central um, that weren't in the screenplay. But, I, you know, I had a teacher at UCLA who said, if you outline correctly, you can leave your plan and you'll still sort of come back to it. And I think that is true. I think that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew where I was going to end up. This other piece ended up pushing the story and the character further mm-hmm. than it would have. But in further in the same direction. Yes. It wasn't a left turn. Right. Yeah. And what, what I'm thinking of, too, is that a screenplay is and a novel are not parallel, not only because they're different genres, but because I think the finished film would be the equivalent to the novel, right? So in a way, the, the, mm-hmm. the screenplay is a br- blueprint like an outline. And you so you sort of shot it. But instead of shooting it with a camera, you shot it with prose yeah that would be a good analogy and I think you know I think a more you know you have these things that are very you know long but we see these adaptations of novels into screenplays and so much gets lost in that process and people are like oh you know and it's like well it doesn't make a good movie if you have all those pieces that a novel can bring it just that's not can't hold it um, whereas we see a lot of short stories being really effectively adapted. Mm. Um, Brokeback Mountain was a short story. I think Benjamin Button was a short story, mm. wasn't it? I don't know. Um, so, I mean, I don't, didn't see Benjamin Button, so I don't know if that was, in fact, a great movie. But I think a better comparison mm. actually would be short story to screenplay. Now, that's interesting because you teach story development based on screenplay structure to people writing novels, memoirs, and short stories. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk about the ways that the novel overflows the bounds of story development for a screenplay and how you kind of accommodate that in in your teaching? Well, I think that when I look at story development, the thing that I'm really interested in is having people dig in to emotion and not losing the logic. So I think that when I when I talk about this development process, uh, a lot of times people will say like, okay, well, I have my character and they're doing the seven steps, but they haven't really done any work on the character. So it's not necessarily a clear 
logical progression. I think oftentimes you can look at somebody's work and say, like, whenever we hear that piece about, like, well, I don't think this character would do that. I think it's not just that the author is wanting the character to do it on, you know, so that they can get to the next place. Um, It's a fundamental misunderstanding of the kind of character that would work in this particular plot. Mm. So you have the option of going back and forth. And so when I talk to novelists, I think the thing I'm looking for them to do is to have regularly spaced, compelling story turns that will keep the reader engaged. And the story turns should, you know, unearth some questions. So when we see people launching, say, into what I would call the act one decision and that plan, you know, the question is, will this plan work? Is it enough? Can this character do that? Um, And those are just basic, without even seeing, you know, what your story is, if you've designed it, there are questions that will come up by definition. But we also talk that you can build a sequence and that instead of having these giant, not instead, but in addition to these sort of larger story turns, you can create smaller questions, again, that keep your reader interested from one story turn to the next. So you're still having a sense of regular, somewhat paced questions that your reader engages with. And so how does that um, fit into your creative process, into your brainstorming process? How do these seven steps work for you now that you've gotten past your resistance to them? How did that evolve? Um, Well, you know, I am a person, again, because I am a dilettante, perhaps. (laughs) Uh, I am a person who tries on a lot of different things and, and am not married to a single process. I use outlining, but I use a bunch of different people's approaches to outlining. I use the seven steps when we when we are talking about it in class. One, because that's something I learned from multiple people in multiple locations and feels like it has been vetted well in that sense. Do you want to throw those out there just so that people listening aren't like, okay. what are they talking about? So... Um, the seven steps basically are, you know, they start with ordinary world. Uh, so even if your story starts at the inciting incident or after ordinary world is all the information that your readers or viewers need to understand that change has happened. So that's, you know, so you set that up. That's the ordinary world, who your character is, the consequences of their flaw, their, you know, all that kind of stuff. Inciting incident is the thing that kind of knocks that world out of balance. There's the, um process of trying to get things into balance and you know act one decision is okay I've done what I would traditionally do as a uh, lazy person because we're all lazy people to get my world back into balance it didn't work I'm going to have to take a larger step and so I now I'm going to actively engage with the story so that's the decision and the plan coming out of that decision is what launches us into the second act and the second act really is the story itself everything else up to that is getting us ready for the story and then the next but not throat clearing and not setting up setting the stage i mean it's all these it's problems and character flaws. yeah you're still you're still setting up challenges for your character and very often those challenges we see them meeting those challenges poorly because of consequence of the flaw. And again, that goes back to the character. Having a character who doesn't know that they have 
absolutely no social skills, um, but continues to be insulting, continues to be rude. You know, your Groundhog Day, for example, um, you know, th- those kinds of things. A lot of kids' books, you'll have a kid who's badly behaved or, um, you know, not listening to other people, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So after they have come to the Act 1 decision and plan, then we've got that first long stretch of Act 2. I always encourage people to try and break that up into sequences. I know someone like Sid Field, I think, uses the phrase pinch. I think Chris mentioned that. But the idea is just to have something that they're driving to, new information that keeps the story engine kind of going. Um, Then there's the midpoint. The midpoint sort of the new information piece. It's that piece that turns the story. It allows the reader to at least have new information. Um... And, and ups the stakes. So it's they can't really back out of the story at this point. I think in um, you know, in other moments earlier, the, the character might have been able to go back to being their somewhat imperfect self. But after the midpoint, uh, the stakes are too high. The stakes continue to rise. Then you have a low point because they hang on to this... Uh, model or view of the world that they have that is not working and coming out of that and again I often feel like this I think I've said this in class I feel like the act one decision and plan is like the mirror opposite of the low point and um, plan coming out of that and so this is toward the end of act two right at the end of act two you've got a person who in this low point right they've been I mean, this is all theory that isn't me at all. I mean, people talk about this and stuff like that. But it's just like, you know, you hit this low point where people have been stripped of their resources and are are left with having to deal with themselves. And coming out of that, they learn something important. They become aware of their flaw very often, what, what it was that caused them to be alone or to be stripped of their resources. And... They are then given the opportunity to create a new plan uh, with that new information. And that then goes into the final battle, which is step six. And then the new ordinary world is the result of that battle. So if they win the battle, yay, they're a good person. Uh, It's a comedy. We see things that reflect the previous ordinary world, but in a better way. So maybe they have the job they were seeking. Maybe they have the partner they were seeking. Maybe... They gave up the partner they were seeking in order to do the right thing. And, um, you know, so there's, you know, so we see those reflections in the new ordinary world. If it's a tragedy, we might see almost identical situations happening. But now as readers and viewers, we understand what could have been. And so looking at someone struggling and failing in those places Uh, You know, so in the beginning, they didn't have the partner that they wanted. And at the end, they still don't have the partner that they wanted. But now it means something completely different. Mm. They will never have Mm. that. Right. Mm. So it's a different thing. So this is so. So let's go back to how angry you were when you first were learning. (laughs) Why were you angry? I was angry. One, I'm. um, One, I didn't want anyone to give me a formula. I felt like. You know, this is art, man. And um, there's not a formula. There's not a way to, to, you know, not... And, you know, and I also resent Joseph Campbell being sort of, sort of shoved down your throat and 
being told that this person, you know, there's a universal story. Um, so, so if there, so if there isn't, why does this work, or why does this work for you? Is it, is it, is it culturally specific? Like, what, why, how does this, how does this work? Well, I think it works for a very. This is why it works for me, and this is what I would see as kind of a life cycle around this process. The thing that I have come to learn about myself is that I learn best by having concrete, specific goals. And only once I've mastered those, am I really able to sort of then say, okay, here are the the things, but here's how we could do it better. Here's how we can break expectation. And I think these give you very common sets of expectations. So that if you were to master this set of steps, you would be able to write a story that could be quite satisfying without necessarily having spent the thousands of years that, that, you know, it takes to sort of internalize without making concrete these processes. Mm -hmm. So I think, uh, you know, understanding that we need, I think change is critical to all story, whatever that change ends up being. And understanding that the ordinary world and the new ordinary world give you the opportunity to have comparables. What is the difference? So that's not a formula. That's a simple fact. Like, I can't know that something has changed unless something has changed and I compare it to something else. So for me, at this point, really what I'm looking at is the opportunity to teach concrete, effective steps that then can lead to, if I make a different choice, how am I doing it intentionally and how... um, as a writer, if you as make a, a writer. choice, because we can also be talking about the character making a different choice, right? Right. So right. As a writer, if but you as make a, a different choice, you're you're kind of deliberately veering off of this. Yeah, certainly, and and I, you know, it's interesting because I think there are there are a lot of stories, screenplays even, where people are veering off of this particular process, and you're making a choice to step into. Uh, things that can become, I mean, into a real experiment. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you have to be willing to have that experiment fail in order to really um, succeed on a longer term level. Mm. Uh, I've read books. I love to tell this story, you know, this book that, you know, I just hated and I just read it. And it was, it was like 700 pages of one paragraph it was just some guy wandering through a town. It was boring and boring. And, you know, my grad school teacher was like, well, I really think he was exploring boredom. And I don't need 700 pages to explore boredom. But other people might really revel in it. And I think we're at a point where people can really connect with niches and um, and can be fed and explored by things, especially in prose, that are much more language-oriented. So, um, for example. Right. So, you know, so I think uh, I also don't look at these steps as being linear in the execution. So, mm-hmm. again, separating the idea of story development versus the structure of your book. Those aren't always the same thing. Say, say, say exactly what you mean there. Well, what I mean there is like if I go through and I make a series of decisions about how I want the story to go based on these seven steps... And yet I choose to start with the midpoint 
And then I choose to go to the Act One decision. And then I decide to go to the New Ordinary World. I, I can lay the book out in a different pattern, mm-hmm. but bring in the different pieces. It's just about having a framework to start with and then to grow from. And you feel like this has a lot of elasticity, it sounds like. I really do. And, you know, for me, one of my favorite, and you know this, exercises comes from uh, the art of fiction. John Gardner. John Gardner. And, you know, it's, it's that describe a barn as seen by a man whose son has just been killed in war. Uh, don't mention the war or the son. And... That exercise, the reason I love it, is that it is so specific. It gets you really thinking about subtext in a deep way. And that's also why I like this structure. It gets you thinking about what are the questions that drive a story? Why do we care about a character? Why this character and not another? Um, You know, and so there's a deep relationship between who your character is and the choices they make and the dis- and, and these big turning points. So if you get to a final battle, say, with a character who is outgoing and gregarious and the final battle you've set up is that that person has to stand up in front of 150,000 people and they're okay with that. You don't care. That's not really relevant. Um, yeah. so, so there's... a a binding relationship between what happens in your story and who your character is. And I think it doesn't have to, when you're starting, it doesn't have to be as esoteric as, um, you know, knowing who this person is through 50,000 years of, of their life or their family's life. You can eventually become, you know, the author of Middlesex and going back to the generations of, of family and the problems that happen. But as a beginning writer, you can simply focus on change. What changes? What changes in the scene? What changes in the story? What changes in this character? And if you only focus on that with this little framework, you can start internalizing that, that story sense. Mm. And dig deeper then into language and into these other pieces. Right, right. So we usually start with talking about what we're working on now, but actually I would love to, to, I'm happy we're bringing it in now because kind of in the context of all of this theory and and all of that, can you talk about what your current project is? Well, don't tell my wife, (laughs) but I actually, I've... I'm finishing up, you know, I'm working on so many things, so it's, it's kind of ridiculous, but I am working on my paper, so I have a paper due for grad school, which I need to turn in very, very soon, um, and I have been working on things for our school, and uh, my wife has some great ideas about things I can add into my screenplay, so I need to go in and sort of buff that out a little bit and then send that out to some folks. But the other thing I've been doing in my tiny free time is uh, learning about sketches. So um, one of the things I want to do is be able to test this production plan I have, which is to have you know a zoom lens and 360 lighting and to create spaces where the actors can move. But how will we get our coverage? So I have been working on writing very, very short things, page and a half things, um, that 
really focus on that shift, on that change, um, and that Gabe can come down and we can shoot Your in a day. cinematographer. My cinematographer, that we can shoot in a day to practice this piece. So that is what I've been working on. That sounds really exciting. But don't tell my wife, because she keeps <laughs> telling me to get rid of things, and I seem to just add them all It's on. just between you and me, but I'm sure she doesn't mean to get rid of writing. Yes. Any project. Um, well, I'll just share what I'm working on, since we forgot to do that at the beginning, and I just as you know, submitted my novel to my writing group to read. And I'm kind of stunned. Like, I'm kind of like, I'm, what am I working on next? You know, and I have a book I've been writing for the kids that I might go back to. But this morning I just got up and I journaled because I was just like, I've been just so, so focused on that. And, but it's, it's really strange to have it out of my hands after being so just like immersed in it. So that's. Well, and I'm really proud of you because I know how much work I, I, uh, get to see how regularly and how well you work on this. You are one of the most committed and um, just sort of amazing writers. And it's, it's great to sort of see that and be exposed to that on a regular basis because I think, you know, I think, oh, I should be doing these things. And it's very hard for me to sit down daily and it's very hard for me to do these other things. And part of that is my neurodiversity. But the other part of it is that, you know, you... You've made everything look easy. You've made birth look easy. And you just, you know, I keep getting into those places where I'm like, wait a minute. So your tenacity is something to be just in awe of. So oh, thank you. Well, thank you. And, and, you know, that's very nice of you to say <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> awkward. Um, <laughs> let's oh, move on. Do comment, compliments make you awkward? Let's discuss that. <laughs> let's move on to steal this. Okay. Amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. Uh, what is something that you have come across in your travels through reading, watching, uh, any of that that you would like to take and make your own? Um, I think, you know, I was ill prepared for this. <laughs> so... Can I do that thing you do at restaurants where it's like, I'll order after you after, order? Yeah, you throw it to me because I'm, I'm hosting. Yeah, host. Tell me. Um, Model. All right. And I'm, I'm slightly ill-prepared too, but I'm going to talk about girls. I'm going to talk about the HBO series Girls, which we just watched the double finale of the other night. <sighs> um, because there's something about it I really love. And... Um, and I want to, I don't actually know exactly what that is. So I'm going to take a minute and maybe you can help me and think about like, why do I really love this, this show? Um, it's about, you know, excessive sexual activity. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's not it. Um, <laughs> but there's something about, you know, I think partly it's, it's really looking at this moment that in our, in this, this contemporary moment, the twenties, our twenties are this kind of crazy at least for some people, culturally, like this crazy exploratory time. And I, and I think um, that is not, hasn't been true historically. So it's, really? well, I mean, historically us, sure. But I'm talking about like, I think from our, gen, you know, I think that for our parents, for example, I mean, your parents were, had three Mary, kids yes. and they had two jobs. And I mean, their twenties were not like, who might I be and which, who might I be sleeping with? And you know what I mean? Like, I think that, um, that is relatively new. I mean, my mm-hmm. mom had me at 28 and that was really late. 
like like she was you know my dad was 45 so that was also late but um you know but that was a thing like my mom was a slightly older mother because she gave birth to me at 28 I thought it was 29 um, I think she's always said 29, but I think she actually turned 29 right <laughs> after I was born. So anyway, and then, you know, my, anyway, my aunt, you know, had her second child at 33 or 34, and that was considered completely geriatric. So all I'm saying is this idea of the 20s as being kind of a an extended teenage time, it's an extended adolescence, a, a coming of age that lasts for like two decades mm. is new. Yeah. And... And yet, and and yet, and yet, you know. So, so how do we kind of talk about that? So, I think this show is is kind of exploring something new and creating a kind of language to talk about that. Maybe that's why I like it. Maybe it's just purient interest and pretty people and all that fun stuff. So, what are you stealing from it? So, what I'm stealing from it. Well, what I always want to steal is a kind of willingness to put um my own experience that seems like nobody else shares it onto the page in such a way that it resonates because I because I love coming across that I mean from from Jesus is son by Dennis Johnson to girls you know and lots in between just like and Lena if you're listening obviously here you're being compared to Dennis Johnson so that's that's a high compliment very high High compliment compliment. I, I bet she knows that but um but I think that that idea of um, putting it on the page, these things that like we know, we experience, but is this is this story, is this art, is this something other people are going to connect to? I mean, I'm going to just like throw Claudia Rankine right in here with Citizen, which seems maybe like off the beaten path for, for this Dennis Johnson to Lena Dunham arc. But, but she's also like she's talking about these little experiences you know not little but like little paragraphs of intense experience with with race and racism and and you know putting it together in this powerful beautiful way and I just think it's taking these things whether it's you know something huge like racism or something quirky like you know our new way of coming of age in our 20s you're like where am I gonna go with this right but (laughs) but it's just it's just being willing to be that honest and open on the page. That's what I would like to steal. But who knows what I'm working on next? So, how about you? Did that help? Did that? Do you ready to order now? <laughs> I feel so completely lost. Um, I think the thing that I would like to steal actually uh, I think it's. I don't know. I think I'm, I've never been quite at this, this loss. What are you reading? Uh, I've been reading... Uh, what was I reading last night? I just, you know, I'm... I'm you're reading a lot about revision. I'm reading a lot about revision. Is there anything you're reading about revision that you're like, yes, that I want to do. I've never done that before. Well, you actually know this. Um, I'm reading a book to the kids called The Royal Institute of Magic. And it's a fun little book. And one of the things this person does very well is they end their chapters with questions. So what, you know, it's actual not, questions. not actual questions, but you are left wondering what's going to happen. What's the consequence? What's the next piece? And I, and I think if I can remember back, Dan Brown did that quite a bit in um, the Da Vinci Code. 
So as I was saying before, looking at breaking up a story into smaller bits that have these questions on which we hang our reader's interest. And so as I look back through editing my uh, screenplay, I, I do, it's a very fast moving back and forth between different groups of people kind of screenplay, but I think making sure that as we leave each group, we are left with a question and we want to come back to find out what happens. So that's what I'm going to do, looking for um, those questions to hang the viewer interest. I love that. That's awesome. Um, How can people find you? That is a great question. People can find me primarily, you can see a very outdated website at angiepowers.com. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me um, at Book Reading World, but not that much, but some. So those are the places. Well, thank you so, so much. Sure. This has been awesome. Thanks. You're like, stop. Stop.